So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12, the text that Amber read earlier. Um, and this is the Old Testament. You know, the Bible is divided into two different parts. There's the Old Testament. We call it the Old, um, the old Promise. Um, and there's the New Testament, the New Covenant Promise. And they're both very important. One actually unveils and describes and gives color to the other. Um, and so we're going to be in Exodus 12 this morning in the Old Testament. And this is a really, really important event in the life of every Jew throughout history. Since this happened, it was, it was uh, calendar shaping. In fact, you can reach back a little bit and look at the first verse in chapter 12. And the first thing the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, he said, This month, the month they celebrated Passover, shall be for you the beginning of months. How important was this Passover event we're going to look at? Well, it shaped their entire calendar. God looked at them and he said, this event is so important, I want you to um, revolve the entire Jewish calendar around this. This is, the first, this is the new year for a Jew, pretty much, so that they would never forget what God was about to do for them on their behalf. And, you know, this translated into, for us, the, the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. And it's um, equally, if not more important, than, than what the Jews celebrated. If you were to ask a Jew in the Old Testament this question... How do you know that God loves you and that God is for you and that God is able to deliver you and make good on his promises? Do you know what they would have said? I mean, you could have woken them up, shaken them awake at three in the morning and asked that question and they would have said, ha ha, oh, the Exodus, the Exodus. You know, it's, that's the name of a book, but it's also the name of an event where God delivered his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm from the clutches of an evil dominating world power, Egypt. God delivered his people from Egypt, decimated the entire army, 600 uh, iron chariots, and buried Pharaoh pretty much and delivered his people. Why did he do that? Because he wanted his people to know his care for them, his love for them, that he treasured them, and that he was powerful, and that he is a covenant-keeping God, and that was making good on a promise he made to his people, and Jesus made a promise to us in the new covenant, and this is to remind us of that. So that event that happened thousands of years ago, that shaped the entire calendar for a Jew. And that's how they would have answered. We know God loves us because he rescued us. We were strangers. We were aliens. We were captives. And God delivered us and continues to deliver us. And that's why we do this, because the gospel is good news. And it's ongoing good news. It's not good news that has an expiration date. You don't believe the gospel Become a Christian and then put the gospel on the shelf and wait until you go evangelize somebody, right? No, it's good news to continually be rehearsed, to be reminded. And here's a really dark truth embedded in that. Do you know that our hearts uh, are so deceptive sometimes that we forget the good news? Isn't that a terrible thing? We forget the good news that Jesus, we're so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. But we're so loved, he was glad to do it. We forget that. But God is so gracious and accommodating. Do you know what he did? You know how much God understands you and me? God knows we're, we're forgetful. We, we have gospel amnesia. And so here's what the Lord did in his goodness. He built in a reminder into his church. That's pretty cool, isn't it? He goes, I know you forget. I know you're a visual learner. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to institute this ordinance called communion, the Lord's Supper. And as often as you do it, as often as you gather together and celebrate this, remember me. Remember what I did for you on that cross. You know, the Jews would remember what God did in Egypt. We're supposed to remember when we gather together what Jesus did 
on a hill outside the gates of Jerusalem on behalf of sinners like us. And then he did it alone. He didn't have any help. And you know what? This story we're going to look at, God didn't have any help either in delivering his people. He didn't need any help. He didn't want any help. He said, I've got this. You go inside your house, shut the door, lock it, slaughter a lamb, throw a party. I'm going to put my hard hat on and I'm going to go to work. You don't need to pick up a sword. You don't need to assemble an army. You don't need to even pray for me. Just party. Slaughter a lamb so that you know what's happening here. And I'll explain it years later. That's, that's the beauty and the power of this reminder that we call communion, that they called Passover. Because we forget the good news and we need to be reminded of it. So um, I have a slide today just to show you the points. Three points in this message, really easy. What does Passover remind us of? And when I say Passover, I'm also meaning communion. They're not the same thing. They're different. One translated into the other. The night before Jesus's uh, the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest and the day before he was crucified, he instituted um, communion, the Lord's Supper. But it came from this event that they did in the Old Testament. So what does Passover remind us of? Three things. Number one, the captivity of all of humanity, that we're in bondage. All of us are hopelessly, helplessly in bondage. We're enslaved. And unless somebody acts, we're hopeless. Okay, that's the first reminder. Secondly, the faithfulness of God. Were it not for the goodness and the graciousness and the faithfulness of God, we would all be hopeless. And three, the scandal of grace. So we're going to look at those three things. Number one, the captivity of humanity. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. This story spans 15 chapters. You should be nervous. I'm not going to preach on 15 chapters, okay? I promise. We're going to boil it down and reduce it down to just this one event at the second half of chapter 12. But this is a 12-chapter event. What does that tell you? I mean, we have 66 books in the Bible, and the, the Apostle John said, if all the things that God did were recorded in a book, the whole world couldn't contain them. So God was very selective, and when His Holy Spirit inspired the authors, including Moses, to record these things, He was very selective. If something is given 15 chapters, it's probably pretty weighty, pretty important, right? <laughs> um, is creation important, do you guys think? That we were created ex nihilo, fiat, we, we were created from nothing uh, into everything, right? That's important. That got two chapters. <laughs> this was given 15. Why is that? Well, because um, God wants to show off a little bit. You know, the whole thing is like this showdown. It really is a showdown between Pharaoh and God. Not Pharaoh and Moses. Get that idea out of your head. It's between Pharaoh and God. It's between what Pharaoh represented, this evil, dominating world empire filled with false religion, satanic religion, false gods, false goddesses. They were misshapen. Um, they were hideous, half the body of an animal, half the body of a man. This is God. It's a showdown, and it lasts 15 chapters. This is showdown at the OK Corral. And the reason it takes so long is because God is, is showing up. He's appearing in Egypt, and he is systematically dismantling all the false gods and the false goddesses of Egypt. He is showing off. He is putting his power and his love on display. That's why it takes so long. And that's why it's so interesting. This is interesting history to read. Um, I mean, if God were to just show up and flex his muscles, but there was no opponent, it'd be boring. You remember whenever, um, was it Muhammad Ali? And forgive me, this is not in my notes. I'm just thinking of this, which is dangerous when you're preaching. It was called... Um, Thrill, thriller at Manila, right? You guys remember that? When Joe Frazier? Was it Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali? There was a showdown. The two heavyweight champions, right, at one time, were going to square off. And they, I mean, they sold out. 
They, couldn't, they didn't have enough tickets or enough seats for that event. Let me ask you a question. What if Muhammad Ali just said, hey, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do some stuff on the stage and like Mike Tyson used to be, I'm going to grab some pigeons. I'm going to flex my muscles. How many people would show up? Maybe a few that were bored. But no, listen, when there's a showdown, when there's an opponent, when there's a fight, <laughs> the whole world shows up, right? That's why people love hockey. It's been said before, I went to a hockey fight and a match. What is it? I went to a hockey fight and a game, you know, a game came out of it or whatever. So this is a showdown, okay? And this is interesting stuff, and it takes 15 chapters for God to tell the story. But the backdrop of the story is this. God's people are in captivity, and they have been for over 400 years. And you say, what in the world has that got to do with us? What is something that happened thousands of years ago with a people who don't even speak our language, a culture we wouldn't even understand? What's that got to do with us? Well, it's got everything to do with us because the Bible knows us. I preached this a few weeks ago. The Bible is the only book that understands us. It reads us back. And the Bible has this peg, folks. You know what the Bible says? It says that all of us outside of Christ are enslaved. Now, that's, that's an offensive thing to hear, honestly. I don't know how often you talk to people out in the street that have no claim to Christianity and you tell them what the Bible really says about them and you say it gently and you say it with love that the Bible says that our hearts are so deceitful, it's desperately wicked, we can't even know it and we're enslaved and our eyes, the Bible uses all these metaphors, we're blind, we've been taken hostage by Satan, our will is fallen and in bondage, we're all held hostage by sin, sin entices us. It entraps us, it enslaves us, and then it destroys us. That's what the Bible says. No exceptions, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what happened to the Egyptians is really uh, a picture, a window into what sin does to all of us. We're held hostage. They were held hostage against their will, but us, not, not so much sometimes. It's, we're in captivity, but that's offensive, beloved, because... When somebody tells you that you are a captive and you're in denial, you don't like to hear that. In fact, religious people, I'm going to be really straight up honest with you, religious people have the hardest time talking about captivity. That can get you in serious trouble. It's all over the Bible. We don't like to talk about it a lot in church. Jesus talked about it a lot. In fact, would you believe that the first sermon Jesus ever preached was in his hometown church? He walked into the synagogue that he was raised in, in Nazareth. He showed up. The attendant handed him the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus found the place. I think it's chapter 60, 61. And he read the place where it was written, uh, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to the oppressed and to set at liberty those who are captives, to open the eyes of the blind. And everyone in the congregation, you know what they did? They were amazed. They were like, oh, this is Jesus. He's our hometown hero. He grew up here. Isn't that cute? The rabbi that came back to his hometown, and then Jesus finished his sermon. And he said, and, and by the way, that's every single person in this synagogue. I came to preach the good news to you because you're all captive. You're all oppressed. I came to set you at liberty. And something changed. Do you remember this? This is in the Bible. This is interesting stuff. Luke chapter 4, check it out when you get home. You know what they did? They took Jesus by the hand and they led him to the hill on which their city was built. And you know what they did? They tried to throw him off the cliff. True story. Why? Because he preached the good news to them because they were captives. You can fast forward the tape to John chapter 8. 
Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and to the scribes and to the lawyers, the religious experts, the holy people that were self-righteous and hypocritical. You know what Jesus said? He said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, whoa, time out, buddy. You're talking about set us free. We're talking about free. We're free. We're sons of Abraham here. Who are you talking to, Jesus? We're free. We've never been in captivity, which is interesting because 15 chapters. Yeah, the Jews were in captivity for a long time. Hard to historically deny that. But do you know what happened? You know what they did? Jesus said, no, you, you're, if you commit sin, then you're a slave to sin. And do you know what the Pharisees tried to do to Jesus? They tried to stone him. They picked up stones to throw him. People get really touchy, man, and on edge when you talk about captivity. you got to be careful. It can get you thrown off a cliff. I know this orchestra pit's just about eight feet deep, so if anybody tries to charge me, we got some people in here packing heat, so watch out, okay? It can get you thrown off a cliff. It can get you stoned. And you know what I mean by getting stoned. I'm talking about a rock that somebody throws at you. You, you can get in trouble talking about captivity. It's offensive to people. Why is it so offensive? Because we live under this illusion of, I'm free, man. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Let me put it in shoe leather for you. Even as Christians, we still struggle with this. I'll give you an example. Have you ever been enslaved to somebody else's opinion of you? Hmm? Everybody got really quiet in here. <laughs> how much weight, how much weight this affirmation from somebody else outside of you hold out for you? Another fallen human being, what they think of you. Man, that can wrap its tentacles around your heart and dominate you and change the way you live your life. And you can be a Christian and still suffer from that. Or you can be so angry and bitter and resentful that it can actually change you into a beast like it did Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. Another picture from the Old Testament of what sin can do to your heart, even as a believer. Bitterness. Fear. Some people live in fear their entire life, and they're absolutely paralyzed by it. They are taken hostage and held captive by fear. They don't want to go outside their home. They don't want to go to the mall. Don't want to associate with other Christians. They're scared to death, even of that. I mean, there's all kinds of things. There, there's, we don't like to use the word addiction, but hey, pick the word that best describes people who are controlled by a substance like alcohol or drugs, or a painkiller, or people who just can't stop clicking that mouse on that captivating image on their screen when they know it's destroying them. What do you call that? I call it bondage. I call it being enslaved. And even Christians can fall victim to that. They can. To lust, to greed, to being materialistic, to thinking that your identity comes from how many numbers are after your name on that paycheck you get every week. Or maybe who signs that paycheck, who you work for, which family you belong to, where you go to school. We get all these crazy, silly, trivial things and enslave us and dominate us. And Jesus says, I'm here to break the back of that. I'm here to set you free. But we're in denial. Oh, I'm good, Jesus. I'm good. People say that all the time. Man, you want to come and worship with us, church? No, I'm good. But you're not good. <laughs> you, you, need, you, you need the word of God in your life. You need to hear the gospel. And you need other people to help you re remember this. Um, sometimes captivity can wreak such havoc and do twisted damage in your mind. Not only are you in denial of it, you're sympathetic to the thing that holds you hostage. Do you guys remember the story of J.C. Duggar? 
She was nine, no, 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 no. She, in 1991, she was 11 years old, beautiful little girl, and she was walking to the bus stop. And a registered sex offender named Philip Garrido and his wife Nancy kidnapped her. In the back of a bus, drove her away. The most horrendous thing you can probably think of as a parent. And her parents were just going ballistic trying to find her. You can imagine what you would be thinking. Is she alive? Is she dead? What is going on? And they followed and chased one dead-end lead after another. And they had given up, pretty much given up all hope. And then 18 years later, wrap your mind around that for a minute. 18 years later, she was seen out in public with this guy. And I don't remember all the details, um, but a police officer saw her and knew something was wrong and asked her who she was, and she gave a false name. She said, my name's Alyssa. And then they checked the, the identification of the man she was with, Philip Garrido, and they saw he was a registered sex offender, and they asked her about it, and she got very agitated and very defensive and began to defend him. Said, he is a great man. He is very loving and very kind, and he's very good with my kids. Well, they did a little dig, and they found out, okay, this is, this is, this is J.C. Duggar. They brought her to the station and come to find out the horrendous details when they unfolded of what that man put her through. Held her hostage, put her in a shack, put her in chains in his backyard, gave her a bucket to relieve herself, put dogs in chains in the backyard and told her if she ever tried to get out, they would eat her alive. He had two kids, the kids that he was so good with her about, he had those kids with her when she was 12 and 15. He took a lot of things from her. He took her innocence. He took her purity. He took her life. In fact, she wrote a memoir years later. And you know what she called it? My Stolen Life. That's a pretty profound title, isn't it? My Stolen Life. But something happened to her that you guys have probably heard of. It's a psychological term. And it's, it's when you begin to, to your identity um, and your freedom has been so taken from you and, and your reality has been so distorted you began to actually be sympathetic toward those who took you captive, toward your captors. And it's called the Stockholm Syndrome. You identify with them. They're your life. You belong to them. And they're killing your, you. They're destroying you. And you're thanking them for the good time they're showing you, right? That happened to her. And it took a long time to break that. That happens all the time. When people get out of prison, they have lifelong sentences Something happens to them. Their identity for so long has been prisoner six and cell block D. When they're on the outside, they can't function. It's called being institutionalized. Some of them will even commit a petty, petty theft, some kind of petty crime to get back in the system because they can't bear to think of life on their own. I mean, are they, are they free? I mean, they're outside, but they're still in prison, very much so. And the same thing happens to us sometimes as Christians. You know, Christ has made us free, but we go back to the old slave masters because that was such a part of our identity. We can't imagine life without it. That's why some people can't escape abusive relationships. Happens all the time in marriages. Like, have you ever asked that? Why in the world are you going back to that spouse that beat you? Because that's their identity, and that's what captivity does to us. It wreaks havoc on our hearts and minds. It does. Stockholm syndrome happens all the time. And Jesus says, you don't have to go back to your old master. Do you know what's interesting? Once the children of Israel escaped the clutches of Pharaoh, and they were released, and they were in the wilderness, do you know what they began to do? They had Stockholm Syndrome. 
And they said, why have you taken us out here to, to scatter our bodies in the wilderness? We had it made in Egypt. We had leeks and onions and melons. We, were, we, we had roofs over our head. That's an actual quote from the Old Testament. They actually said that. You're like, wait a minute, hang on a minute. You remember the Hebrew taskmasters, right? They had whips. They had rods. They beat you. You had to make bricks without straw, dude. It was hard labor. You were in bondage. You remember you cried out to the Lord? You groaned? Moses at the burning bush? I've heard the affliction of my people. I've seen their distress. I feel their anguish. I'm going to deliver them. You don't remember that? We forget, don't we? We want to go back to what we're familiar with, what's comfortable, because we can't imagine a life of freedom. It's just too good to be true. This reminder right here reminds all of us about captivity. We are all still in danger of this captivity if we forget the gospel. Because that represents freedom, and it's true freedom. Listen, Jesus is a much better master than Pharaoh was. He's a much better master than your greed or your lust or your fear that paralyzed you. Isn't he? Haven't you tasted that freedom? If the Lord set you free, if the Son set you free, you are really free, man. The shackles have fallen off. That's what this is. It's a good news reminder. Pharaoh hated the children of Israel. They were like fire ants in his backyard. He resented them. He hated them. But he was so scared of them because they represented a threat to him that, you know, one day they can turn on me. They could defeat the entire Egyptian army. So he made them do hard bondage for 400 years, and they would build his cities. They were his slave laborers, so he wasn't about to let them go. And so God came, and he said, look, I'm going to let my people go. I'm going to rescue them. It's interesting, in chapter 8, verse 2 of Exodus, God sends Moses. And Moses says, look, the Lord says, let my people go. And if you don't, I'm going to plague you. It's interesting because it's hard to translate in Hebrew nouns and, and verbs. He says, I'm going to send plagues upon you, but it's actually a verb, and it's a powerful electric verb. Moses says, if you don't, God says through Moses, if you don't let my people go, I'm about to plague you, dude. And the word plague, that verb, it means strike. It means I'm about to knock you out, Pharaoh. If you don't release my people and let them go, I'm about to knock you out, dude. And all of Egypt is going to see it, and they're going to know that you're a scam. You're not a god. You're not the son, you're not the son of Ra. The, the God of Egypt, you're a nobody, and God's going to topple you, and he's going to do it in front of all your leaders, and you're going to be humiliated and embarrassed. And Pharaoh said, I ain't doing it. And God said, fine, it's on. That's what the 15 chapters is. God's people are in captivity, and listen, God offers them freedom. But here's, the, here's kind of the psychological dynamic. The news is too good to be true. The captivity is so powerful. We need to really see that God has the power to truly deliver us. Because in our hearts, we doubt that. We still doubt it. Can God really make good on his promises? I mean, man, this, this is so captivating, this thing that, that has me. It's got his tentacles wrapped around me. Can God really continue to deliver me? God knows our hearts. And he knew that Egyptians needed to see it. God could have destroyed Egypt with a thought. I mean, he created the world, man, with words. And he, as I'm sitting here preaching, God could create 100 million universes with no effort and no sweat off of his brow. So why did God take 15 chapters? Because he wanted to show Israel who he really is. The whole thing has this flavor of supremacy. I mean, Egypt was, a, was the most powerful world empire at the time. They had supreme military. They had supreme culture. They had supreme rulers. They had supreme religion. They were, everything was supreme. And, and, and think of this. <laughs> Here comes Moses, a fugitive, 
that was on the run. Remember, he murdered an Egyptian, and he had to run for his life. And God tells him to go back. So Moses, this old dude, he marches back into Egypt with a cane. He smells like sheep, and he walks into Pharaoh's chamber, in his throne room, and he says, hey, let my people go. <laughs> and Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should let his people go? I don't know who the Lord is, and I'm not about to release my slave labor force. And Moses says, all right, God's going to knock you out, dude. <laughs> You better let his people go. He's going to knock you flat, and it's on. So that's what this whole thing is about. It's a reminder about captivity. About captivity. Here's the second thing. The faithfulness of God. Second point, faithfulness of God. So it's been 400 years. Put yourself in the shoes of an, of a, of an Israelite. They've been groaning. They've been crying out to God. And he's been faithful because they're alive. And, you know, there's much more backstory to this. They're reproducing so fast. The children of Israel are multiplying. They're swar- the word in Hebrew means they're swarming. It's the language of creation in Genesis 2. Uh, Pharaoh's intimidated. This Israelites, man, what are we going to do with them? They keep multiplying. And it's God showing Pharaoh something, you know? They're like ants. They're swarming everywhere. So God's faithful to them. And Pharaoh says, you know what? If I can't, I can't stop them from multiplying, kill their firstborn. Whenever a, a, a newborn son comes, throw him in the Nile River and drown him. You know, that's his solution. If you can't stop him, murder the children, you know. Um, which is really interesting because this Passover, the plague, the last plague that God brought on Egypt, you remember what it was? The death of the firstborn. It's a little bit like poetic justice. God said, you killed my firstborn? You're going to kill my firstborn and throw them in the Nile River? Okay, all right. God, I'm going to take care of this. It's, po- it's poetic justice. Um, but God is faithful to Israel. It's a silent faithfulness for 400 years. What was God doing? He was waiting to make good on his covenant promise. He had seen and heard the affliction of his people. He had heard them cry and groan. And it's the same way with us. You know, so often we, we, we don't see God at work in the way we want to. We were expecting this. And God didn't do it exactly the way we wanted him too. And so we think, where are you, God? What are you doing? You're killing me here. God's not killing you. God's teaching you something. It's called faith. You know, we want God to, to uh, drop a blueprint into our life and tell us, why am I sick? Why have I been sick this long, God? What are you doing here? You, you, this is the abundant life that you promised in John 10. I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. But Lord, I'm, I'm weak and I'm fragile and I'm losing, my, I've lost my job and I got this sickness and Whatever it is, and God says, you're just going to have to trust me. You're just going to have to trust me. I love you and I care for you. I've proven that to you over and over. You're going to have to trust me that I know what's best for you and that whatever suffering you have to go through, know this, that you're not going through it alone. See, God was with his people for all those 400 years, faithfully protecting them, preserving them, multiplying them, and then when the time came, he sent Moses and God acted. This is something about the faithfulness of God. You guys remember the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo? That's one of my favorite movies of all times. I love the book. I love the actors. I love Jim Caviezel. He's one of my favorite actors. Um, And he plays uh, Edmond Dantes in the movie, and he gets thrown in this prison. Uh, I forget the name of it in French. Somebody help me out. What's the name of the prison? Oh, goodness, guys. Come on. That's a great great book. Chateau d'If, I think, is the name of the prison. Anyway, so he's there, and he figures out, I'm not getting out. And he befriends a priest who's in a cell next to him, who's played by Richard Harris. He's got this old, crackly, beautiful voice. Um, And he's telling the priest, 
He says, there are 72,519 stones in my prison cell. He says, I've counted them. And Richard Harris in that voice says, but have you named them yet? (laughs) And then this sets off this dialogue where Edmond Dante says, God has forgotten me. He's forgotten me in here. He was once a religious, devout uh, Christian, you know, in the, in, in the book and in the, in the movie. He was devout. And he says, God has forgotten me. Because the priest is saying, trust God. He says, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't trust God. He let me down. My fiance's out there. I'm in here. God has forgotten me. I don't believe in him anymore. And then it's a really profound line in the movie. Richard Harris says, it doesn't matter. He says, he hasn't forgotten you, and, and he believes in you. And I know that's, that sounds like a self-help. He's not saying God is trusting in you. Rather, God knows you're here, and God's love for you is just as faithful as the day he saved you. And God's going to act, and of course he does in the movie. It's really interesting. But we, so often we, we, we feel like that. We feel like God has left us hung out to dry. He has forgotten us. Um, but as in the case of Exodus chapter 12, you see that he hasn't, in fact. God was waiting. God's timing is always impeccable, Right? He, he arrives precisely when he means to, um, and he knows what he's doing. So that's what this is about. It's about not only our captivity, but it's also about God's faithfulness. And again, God wanted to demonstrate his supremacy, that he is the one true God. And all, you know, all the plagues that you see in this story, the frogs, the lice, um, the, the darkness, all those things, you realize they represent an entire system of false uh, deities, you know, there was a goddess of the Nile River that protected it. Uh, happy was the name of the god, I think, <laughs> who wasn't too happy when God plagued the Nile with, and turned it into blood. But uh, that was a god who, that, that was all of Egypt adored, uh, had reverence, and worshipped all these gods and goddesses. And every single play, God is proving to them, this god's nothing. This is a paper tiger. This is a figment of your imagination, and I'm going to topple it over and show I'm supreme. I mean, he was the god of the Hebrews, the god of the shepherds, the god of the sheep and goat herders, and he walked in. I mean, that would be like somebody walking in. You know, I played football in high school, and homecoming was a big deal, and it was always at your home court, right? And whenever another team came, there was a lot of pressure on you um, to not be humiliated in front of all the homecoming royalty, in front of all the fans that came. Just think about it, though. This is like Egypt's homecoming, and this foreign, unknown deity named Yahweh walks in out of nowhere, the God of the fugitive, Moses, and he like decimates the entire land. In fact, Egypt is so decimated at the very end that even the Egyptians are begging Pharaoh, please let the Israelites go. Don't you see that Egypt is destroyed? In studying this, I saw that a lot of people are skeptical of this account. You know that, right? Some people don't believe the Old Testament. They don't believe creation. They don't believe the miracles. They don't believe the crossing of the Red Sea. And one of the reasons they don't is because they've studied Egyptian literature. And they don't find anywhere an account of this. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this one out. Let me ask you a question. If you were an Egyptian um, historian and you were proud of your country, would you record this? (laughs) I mean, I might edit that out, right? (laughs) This no-name deity named Yahweh uh, came in and like completely destroyed Um, our entire country and proved how false our gods and goddesses are and overturned our religion. I'd probably leave that out. And they did leave that out. But that's true. That's true history. That's what happened. And it was a humiliation and an embarrassment to them. So anyway, I'm getting off track. Those are the first two points, right? Passover and communion uh, reminds us about the, the captivity of humanity, about the faithfulness of God. And here's the 
Here's the explanation point at the end of this, okay? It also reminds us, and we're going to get in the text more now, it reminds us of the scandal of grace, the scandal of grace. And man, I pray that God helps us wrap our minds around this, because this is what was going on, okay? In, in the text here that was read earlier, this 10th plague that was promised, God says, look, because Pharaoh has not let, not yet let the Israelites go, I'm going to smite him, I'm going to strike him. Now, every other plague, God's people didn't have to do anything. They just had to stand back and watch, right? That's what God was showing off. He said, watch what I'm going to do. The people of Goshen, the people, the Israelites and their land, they'll be fine. There will be darkness over here. There will be light here. All the Egyptian cattle will be destroyed by the, uh, the hail, the fiery hail from heaven. Um, and the, the, the Israelites, domestic wildlife, they'll be, they'll be fine. All the sheep and, and cattle. He's always making a distinction. Israel didn't have to act. They didn't have to do anything. But this time, it's a little bit different. God gives Moses specific instructions. And it's really strange when you read it. Check it out. In verse 28 here, or excuse me, 20, um, 21. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You know what that word means? Plague. Same word I told you. Knock you out. This is pretty gripping. God says, look, um, I'm about to unleash a force in Egypt that's unstoppable. Nobody can stop it. I'm going to unleash this force. And I know before, I haven't given you any instructions except sit back and enjoy the show. Get some popcorn, right? Uh, enjoy yourself. Get in the lazy boy and recline. God says, this time's different because I'm about to unleash this force. Um, and really, the Egyptians that I'm going to strike and smite and plague, they're really not that much different from you. This is the scandal here. You say, whoa, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, yeah, check this out. God is saying, I'm going to spare you, but there's only one way I can spare you. Because, see, you're just as guilty as the Egyptians. It's not so much that you need freedom and deliverance from Egypt. You need freedom and deliverance from yourself. That's what this story is about, guys. That's what this reminder is about. See, we have all these outside threats, these outside forces that we think, you know, this has got me down, this is my issue, this person over here, this job, this career, this sickness, and God says, no, the, the thing that you need most to be delivered from is your own heart. And that's why there's really no distinction here in this plague between the Egyptians and the Israelites. God says, I'm going to unleash this force that's unstoppable, and there's only one thing that you can do that's going to be able to stop it. And it's scandalous, man, when you think about it. Kill a lamb. <laughs> That's it. Kill a lamb. Slaughter a lamb. Dip the hyssop, and that was a plant. Dip hyssop in the blood and, and put it on the door. And lock the door and come inside and don't go outside all night, whatever you do. I mean, dude, that's weird, isn't it? That is weird. And it's no weirder than the gospel when you think about it. Really. This unstoppable force is only one thing that can stop it. A slaughtered lamb, right? <laughs> That's Christianity, guys. You're going to have to get somebody to stand in your way because somebody's going to get struck your sin. God's a just God and he's a holy God. And the Bible says all of us have gone astray. We have all like sheep left the flock, left the shepherd. 
And because of God's justice, somebody's going to have to take the hit for that. Somebody's going to have to swallow the debt and pay it in full. And the Egyptians are going to get it tonight. They're going to get it. They've had it coming for a long time. Um, And listen, you better stay inside your house. You better not go outside because the fact that you're a Jew, put that on top of your head, that's not going to spare you. This goes beyond ethnicity, okay? Just because you're a Jew and you're one of God's chosen people, you're still a sinner. And you still need protection and you still need to trust in God's slaughtered lamb to protect you and to free you and to forgive you. This is not just about freedom. This is also about forgiveness. This is really interesting. When you read this, it's a little bit scary. Lock the door and don't go outside. When I was growing up, and I'm always leery to share movies because I don't remember everything in a movie. I grew up watching a lot of stuff, okay? Um, and this came out in the 80s, and it was a John Carpenter. You know, the, the, he was like Wes Craven. They wrote all those slasher movies. Um, but there was a movie called, I think it was something like The Fog back in the 80s, and it was about this town by the ocean, and, you know, 100 years ago, something happened with some pirates, and there was a curse on the town, and I don't, I can't even believe I'm sharing this, but I just remember being gripped as a kid watching this, because fog would roll in, and it would go throughout the village, and there was this ominous music, you know, those John Carpenter music uh, movies would have like, dung, 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 and this fog would sweep through the town, and it would come up to the door, and the people would be inside doing whatever they were doing, and there would be a loud, ominous knock. And the minute they went to the door and opened it, they were slaughtered, you know. Um, and I, I can't help but think of that. And then seeing Cecil DeMilt's Ten Commandments, it was the same idea, remember? There was this eerie fog that came down throughout all the, the, the city of uh, the, the country of Egypt. And it would go up to the door, and if there was blood over the doorpost, and it would back up and go somewhere else, and you would hear all these screams and groans. So what in the world is going on here? And it's hard to miss the... It's hard to miss the parallels between Christianity and Judaism here, isn't it? One is a fuller expression of the other. This is what happened to Christ. Jesus is the slaughtered lamb. And, and what this is, this is a call to trust in him. I mean, the name of this title is Pass Over Us. You guys know what we all deserve, right? Because of our sin. We haven't loved God perfectly. We haven't loved others perfectly. We've all been aberrant in word and deed and thought. We don't We don't deserve for God to pass over us. You know what we deserve? We deserve for God to pass through us and obliterate us. It's what everyone deserves. But because of God's mercy and because of God's grace, he provided a way. He provided a way. And listen, this is the scandal of this whole thing. God passing over them and sparing their life, it was not dependent upon the quality of the people inside those houses that slopped the, the blood on the door. See, this is what we forget as Christians. Even, we even forget that when we come to celebrate communion. I don't know what uh, rich history and background and church culture you were a part of, but we tend to really make this about really scrutinizing the quality of your faith. You know, We take that Paul's instructions in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, like examine yourself, examine yourself, examine yourself. And we really take that further than I think the Holy Spirit intended for us. Um, and we think, man, you've got to be worthy to be able to take this. And he doesn't use the word worthy there as an adjective. It's actually an adverb. The people at Corinth, the way they were eating and drinking uh, was an unworthy manner. They were getting drunk. They weren't waiting on each other. It was terrible. It was a terrible thing that they were doing. And we've taken that and we've tried to apply it to the church today and we've misapplied it. And that's why it's so sad when we have the Lord's Supper sometimes. Have you guys ever been a part of a church? It's not the Lord's Supper. It's like the Lord's funeral, (laughs) right? Everybody's scared to death. I recently heard of a church that's reformed up in... I think it was up in Michigan. 
A thousand people go to this church. And the Lord's funeral for them had, had gotten so bad that one Sunday out of a thousand people, do you know how many people actually felt uh, equipped and prepared to, to take the elements, the bread and the cup? Twenty. Mostly staff and leaders out of a thousand people. That's terrible. That is terrible. Because listen, here are the people who are able to partake of this. Believers in Christ. That's it. I mean, the examination ought to be, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus? If you're trusting in the finished work of Jesus, you need to celebrate this with us today. This is for believers. This is actually one of the things in our service. We try to make our service intelligible for outsiders. And hopefully if you came in here this morning and you're not even affiliated with the church, you don't buy into Christianity, maybe you're just curious, uh, hopefully you understood the message and I'm glad you came. Um, This next part that we're going to do at the end of the service, this is not for you. It's for you to witness and to listen and to learn, um, but this is for believers, for people who are confessing Christ as their salvation. Jesus is my righteousness. I'm not trusting in my own heart. I'm not trusting in my own merits. Just like the people, and listen, some of the people that put blood over their doorpost, they were greedy. They were materialistic. Some of them were probably perverted, right? So was it, was it their uh, integrity that, that rescued them? What was it? It was the blood of the Lamb. It was the blood of Christ, but that was a picture of the one who would come and rescue them finally and fully and completely when Christ came. That's what this tells us. You better not go outside your door, dude. (laughs) Now, I bet there was a celebration inside. I mean, mean, there's both parts when I study this. There's both parts. I bet it it was pretty somber to hear the cries of the Egyptians. I don't know how close they lived to them or how vivid that was, but you knew, man, the destroyer is coming. And that word uh, destroyer, it's a strange idiom in Hebrew. It's a personalized form of destruction. <laughs> it's just like this is the wrath of God that's coming through and going to sweep everybody up unless, unless you tell God, look, I'm trusting in the blood of the Lamb. I'm trusting in outside help. I'm not trusting in myself. So I'll bet it was somber. But here's the beauty of this. God says, you know what? Tonight, I'm about to answer all your prayers. 400 years you've been praying for me to deliver. I'm about to show off for you. I'm about to deliver you. I don't need you to do anything. Again, don't strap on a sword. Don't assemble an army. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go slaughter a lamb, cook it, and throw a party. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That's That's like the mystery of Christianity. We're humble. We're humble because we know we're sinful enough that Jesus had to die. But we're glad and we rejoice and we celebrate because we're accepted. Not based on our own merit. Not based on our integrity not based on our worth. We don't have anything to offer God except our sin. Amen? So there's this this idea of celebration too. And man, this was written all over the pages of history. God is a celebrating God. He is a festive God. When God wants you to remember something he did, he said throw a party. There's like six parties in the Old Testament. And you know what I mean when I say party. I'm not talking about a drunken, debacled, you know, orgy or something like that. I'm talking about a real festive mood. God wanted his people to remember his power, his beauty, his love, and his deliverance. So God said, I want you to do this every year, Passover feast, to remember this. I don't ever want you to forget what I did for you. And you need to be continually reminded, don't trust in yourself, trust in me. So let me be really blunt. There was only, um, let me be really blunt with what was happening in in this story. In every house in Egypt that night, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. That's what this story talks about. 
I mean, when God warned them, nobody go outside because you can't do anything to stop this force that I've unleashed. Do you know what Jesus did? If it helps you to think of it in terms of this. You know what Jesus did? He pushed, pushed himself away from the table. He quietly excused himself. And he unbolted the door. And he shut it. And he made sure the blood was visible. And he walked outside. And he took the full force of God's wrath. That's what he did. He absorbed all the wrath on our behalf. And then when Jesus, the night of his arrest and betrayal, was seated with his apostles, and he said, I have greatly desired to celebrate this last supper with you, this Passover. And Jesus did something really shocking. He talked about bread, and he broke bread, and he blessed it, and the cup of the covenant, he talked about that. But there was something missing that night. You know what it was? You know the thing that was missing in the upper room? Have you guys ever thought about this? There was no lamb there. (laughs) You know how odd that must have been for the disciples? It's like, Jesus, this is the Passover. We get the bread, we get the wine. That's great and everything, but... Where's the, lamb? Where's the lamb at? You know, there was no lamb on the table, but there was a lamb at the table. Jesus, There was no lamb laying up on top of the wood, but you know what would happen the next day? God's lamb, the spotless lamb, the perfect lamb, would stretch himself out on a piece of wood. And again, he would excuse himself and he would be outside the house where the safety of, of God's love and covenantal faithfulness rested. He would be outside the house, outside the city gates, all the way out on a hill, alone, between two criminals, slaughtered. God slaughtered lamb. And, and friends, this is what God calls us to do, and that's why we're doing it the first of every month. Now, I've repented of not making this precious event uh, more a central part of what we do as, as, as worshipers here at Grace Life. We need this reminder. That's why... Man, I, I was just crying during the worship this morning. I'm thinking, God, you are so good to us. I, I wish this whole place would be filled up this morning and that I could articulate the good news in a way that's intelligible and understandable. You don't realize how good God is to us. We don't deserve any of his mercies. And I think people have so forgotten. They think that the Lord's Supper and Christianity is this religion that's just a reward for strong people. And it's not. It's a, it's a reminder of good news for weak people, for sinners. That's why this is a good thing for us to do today. We're celebrating God's faithfulness to us. We're celebrating His goodness to us. And I want this to be a celebration. Kevin DeYoung said this, The Lord's Supper is meant to nourish and strengthen our weak faith. The sacraments, which is what this is, do not create faith. Rather, they confirm it. So I don't want you to be thinking about um, if you measured up. (laughs) That's what people do at the Lord's Supper. Did I measure up? Am I worthy? Is my faith strong enough? Don't think about those things. You may be guilty of taking it in an unworthy manner if you do. Think outside of yourself to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God this morning. Think about God's imputed righteousness to you and to me. We didn't do anything to deserve to be children of God. He did everything. He delivered us. He gave us freedom, and He gave us forgiveness. That's what this is really about. And I think I have one more slide. Do I? Pull it up there. Yeah, this is, this is uh, the final thing that Jesus said. In 1 Corinthians 11, I usually read this when we take communion, but I'll read it now. For I received, this is Paul remembering what Jesus said in the upper room. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of 
of me, not yourself. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Everybody's always wanted to preach, right? <laughs> I mean, some people do maybe. This is you preaching with me this morning when we have the Lord's Supper. Look at the last verse. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're not only looking back to what Jesus did, we're looking forward to him coming again and rescuing us so that we never have to wrestle with the captivity issue again. Amen? Amen.